Hi, everyone. It's Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and you are listening to the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. My guest today is Nina Varela, and she is the author of Juniper Harvey. Now, it has a big old long list uh, of words in the title, Juniper Harvey and the Vanishing Kingdom, but I really just think of this as Juniper Harvey because think about how much fun that name is to say. It's Juniper Harvey. Say it three times fast and your life is vastly improved because who doesn't want to know Juniper Harvey? You will by the end of this podcast. Um, Nina is, I've already had a chance to chat a little bit uh, with Nina and I've got to see her chat at our Saturday morning live event. She, as they say, is rather charming. She was born in New Orleans, one of my favorite cities, and in fact, was just recently there eating and drinking my way through town uh, with a great friend of mine. Uh, If you want to look at art, you want to hear music, and you want to do interesting things, don't go during Mardi Gras. That is boring. Go before Mardi Gras. That's fun. She was raised in the woods of North Carolina. I love trees. Super enjoy that. She was out in nature. I mean, nature hates me, but I do like the concept of being near nature and learning from nature. And now she lives in Los Angeles, which is not a concept. I understand of all the things about her life that I don't understand this is the only thing I don't it's Los Angeles and I've had people try to explain Los Angeles to me before but it's like vampires I don't get it I just don't get it all that is to say <laughs> Nina welcome to LPYR and do the podcast thank you so much I know Honestly, I also don't understand why I live in Los Angeles so <laughs> I know. I'm looking at you now and I'm just like mm doesn't look like an LA outfit that looks like a Portland Oregon outfit are you sure you're in Los Angeles oh no it's like 60 degrees outside and I'm still in like my fuzzy puffy like teddy bear coat I'm just I'm fully weak now I can't handle anything at less than 60 degrees it's pathetic (laughs) okay well I guess we'll allow it now um Juniper Harvey I think is your first middle grade I think you've done a couple YAs before am I wrong about that no, you're correct. Uh, yeah, the Y's were published by another house. So while we will allow it, we will not focus upon it. Uh, but <laughs> Juniper is a really great fantasy novel that I think really, when we were reading it for acquisition, one of the things I always think about with a middle grade novel is, um, and this marks how old I am, does it have a beat and can you dance to it? <laughs> the eternal questions posed by one Dick Clark. Uh, who is probably still somewhere with us in the ether. And I have to say, it really does. It has a good beat. You can dance to it. And it has a really great, um, for lack of a better term, mouthfeel. A lot of people don't think they should read middle grade books aloud. I feel like this one begs to be read aloud. It has a really great cinematic feel that you just sort of want to perform. So I hope educators out there will get their reader's theater on. I know that used to be big in the 90s and the early 2000s, people doing reader's theater of middle grade books. But this really does. Uh, Juniper's family moves to the middle of nowhere in Florida. Having been to Florida on a number of occasions, because I do have relatives down there, I have been to the middle of nowhere, Florida. That is a thing. Okay. Okay. It certainly is the middle of nowhere. There's a lot of nowhere. It's a lot of nowhere, and it's a lot of middle, but I have to say, you picked a part of the geography of the United States that has so much pop culture-iness to it but also indeterminateness to it and sort of a bit of a free-for-all to itness mm-hmm. that makes it the perfect setting for a fantasy book. That's what I thought too. 
Like in the beginning, it was it actually the entire thing came out of a pun because uh, and I'm, I will get into this later, but this story is loosely based on a specific um, ancient myth. And so that story is um, set on the island of Cyprus off the coast of Greece. And so I was like, you know, how can I connect these two places? Like, how can I connect like an imaginary world with um, with you know the real world? Where would a place named Cyprus, as in the, you know, the sort of aerial rooted tree rather than the Greek island, um, where would that be in the United States? They have a lot of cypress trees in Florida. So I picked Florida and went from there. Um, and then as I went, I discovered how wild and strange and magical certain areas of Florida are. So I, I really dug into that and it was super fun. I, I love that. I mean, I, I, Florida to me is so overdetermined that it is undetermined. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that oh, makes yeah, like, sense, but it's just sort of like, it's Flo- Florida man and Florida this, that, the other thing, but then <laughs> underneath, it's so, but right, it's sort of like the rainforest where everything is up top and you think it keeps going down to the ground, but no, like the cypress tree, all the action is at the top and then you can do anything at the bottom. So true. You can do just There's about There's a lot of anything. hidden secrets there. So Juniper's down there and she finds an ancient temple. Now, this is, as I've said, cinematic. It has a really great mouthfeel to it. Reads aloud really well, even though I cannot speak coherently today. We'll figure that out in the post. (laughs) One of this aspect is that Juniper's having dreams. Again, porosity, indeterminacy, liminality, all those great words that I remember from my graduate school days. Uh, And... It's about a statue, a statue of a girl and wishing the statue was here. And it's all about that having moved and being the new kid again, liminality, porosity. So rather than recap the plot of this, I want to sort of get an idea to plumb the depths of your imagination. And I think we've touched on it a little bit with thinking about Cyprus, the island and Cyprus, the tree. What matters to you as a writer in the imagination not so much what was the very concrete idea of this book although you can talk about that but what is the thing in your imagination that just sort of sparks off that idea and then this story emerges out of it I originally started conceptualizing this story like a few years back when for various reasons like my my agent asked like if I had ever thought about um adapting uh you know a Greek myth to a story. And so I had, I, you know, I like every other, you know, kid in my generation, I grew up on the Percy Jackson books. I grew up reading like the giant Greek mythology books. And it was, you know, my, some of my first introductions to mythology and to, you know, archaic cultures and stuff like that. And so um, I had thought a lot about certain stories that I found more interesting than others over the years. And one of them was the story um, of Pygmalion and Galatea as it is referred to, it was originally published in um, Ovid's Metamorphoses about 2,000 years ago. Um, and it's just called Pygmalion the Sculpture, the, the Sculptor, sorry. And it's about Pygmalion, who is a sculptor who lives on an island, the island of Cyprus. And he's very, very lonely and in want of a wife. But none of the women on his island are good enough for him. He's kind of a jerk about it. And so instead, he uses his sculpting skills to carve a beautiful, a beautiful statue of ivory. And then he prays to the goddess Aphrodite to, um, you know, bring him a bride as beautiful and as perfect as his ivory girl. And so Aphrodite takes pity on him and ends up just bringing his ivory statue 
statues to life. And then he marries the statue and, you know, they're wed and apparently live happily ever after. And then it's a very short, a very short story. It's like barely, barely more of a paragraph. Um, and so I was always fascinated by that one, not so much because of the specific characters, because again, Pygmalion is kind of a, kind of a jerk. Um, he, he doesn't have the nicest thoughts about women, but I was really, really compelled by the idea of this, you know, lonely artist who, um, whose creation comes to life through, you know, through sheer force of will and through his prayers to Aphrodite. Um, and then, you know, I started thinking about, well, the story just ends with this line of they were happily wed and, and lived happily ever after. Sure. But is that really what would happen? You know, what, what would actually happen when he brought this statue to life and said, hey, you're going to be my wife now. And this statue who has recently become animate is like, well, I, I guess that's my job. I guess there's nothing else for me to do. You know, it just it just had me thinking about um, what it means um, when an object becomes animate and how that would how that would work, um, and how to lend more you know humanity and more personality to that 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 statue and think about them as a person um, in a way that the myth didn't really do. And so, all of that um, after all of that, you might not be thinking like middle grade story. But I was thinking about The Lonely Artist, and um, it just seemed like such a middle school experience of being, you know, shy and wanting so desperately to connect to people and wanting companionship and feeling like you can't reach out and you can't, um, you know, you're like too awkward or too, or, like too shy, da, da, da. Um, you can't make it happen for yourself. And so you kind of retreat into your artistic, um, your artistic nature, whatever your whatever your craft is. And just sort of um, use your imagination to create ideal companions for yourself. Um, so yeah, I was, so I was thinking about like this character who would, you know, start drawing or sculpting or whatever it was, this ideal companion, and just be wishing like I wish this person was real. I wish this person could be my friend. Um, and you know, obviously, what follows is well, what happens if that person is actually brought to life and has their own personality and their own desires and might not want to just be there to be someone's friend or something. And so that is what grew into Juniper Harvey, where the slight difference is that um, while Juniper does draw portraits of Galatea, this girl that she's been seeing in her dreams, um, and does wish for her to be real and be alive, uh, it turns out that her wish wasn't necessarily uh, needed because Galatea did actually already exist. And Juniper has just been seeing her and seeing this real girl who has an entire history, an entire life, and a lot of problems in her magical kingdom. And now they're tossed together through magic and fate. And Juniper has a lot of things to learn about, you know, what who this person is and kind of um, the nature of her of her personhood and her own complicated past and how they can, um, you know, grow closer despite being very different people from very, very different worlds. I love that whole answer, partly because, um, uh, as some listeners know, before I was in children's book books, I was doing a PhD in ancient Near Eastern studies, and Greece is part of the ancient Near East, and one of the genius elements of Greek art is that it communicates movement. That's the secret. Mm -hmm. It's not just 
that your hand is perfectly symmetrical and perfectly formed or that the face of the sculpture is perfect. In fact, often um, really genius ancient Greek sculptures are quite ugly up close because they don't conform because they're there to communicate movement. And this story is a lot about movement. Uh, it's not about idealization or really the limits of the idealization and that people are constantly moving constantly thinking juniper is a very active character in a number of ways and almost as i was reading juniper's story it's like that's the issue juniper just doesn't know her own trajectory <laughs> yet right <laughs> mm -hmm. but also your book you know specifically really resists letting kids think their friends are there for them Mm -hmm. your, your friends are not just for you to reflect back at you. Your friends are for exploration. And it is about emotional movement and psychological movement and becoming truthful with ourselves and with each other. And that whole process handled in a really, for lack of a better term, fluent, fluid, nuanced way. So thinking about your general outlines of the story, how did you imagine or conceptualize more detail in a more detailed manner how you were going to handle this sort of how deep you wanted to go with this fluidity um and how or how expansively you wanted to do that in thinking of, about the details of the story the psychological issues of the story yeah so i'm so glad you said that because that was one of the um the, one of the main things i was doing between drafts is like really really trying to flesh out you know these new friends that juniper is making and trying to make them, you know, their own complete people on the page, separate from their relationship to Juniper. Even though, you know, she's the protagonist, she's the POV character, like they're they're being filtered through her their interactions with her, but I still wanted them to feel real and like they have all of their own real desires and goals and problems um, completely unrelated to Juniper and her, you know, how she's wrapped up in her own mind. I was doing a lot of a lot of character work with that, um, with their group dynamic, especially and like one of the things I was doing was um, kind of fitting each character into something of an archetype. Like I was thinking of them as they grow closer, as sort of they make up this body together. And I was thinking of Juniper as the eyes and one of her other friends as like the heart and her other friend as the muscle and her other friend as um, as the brain and sort of using those archetypes to determine how they would interact and how they would react to, you know, the various crazy situations that they're finding themselves in um, and and how they problem solve and talk to each other and just doing whatever I could to try to make them feel real on the page. And then also, like, as you said um, about movement, um, this was a portal fantasy, right? So there, it involves like going to another world. So I wanted to, um, I did a lot of research and, and reading into tropes and the ones that I wanted to lean into, the ones I wanted to subvert um, when I was doing this genre, uh, partially because like it's sort of a mini double portal fantasy where first Galatea shows up in this world and then everyone goes to Galatea's world, um, which I guess, you know, no spoilers beyond that, but they do, they do go to the other world. Um, and so I wanted to really emphasize a sense of atmosphere and place and really make like Florida feel just as real and magical as Galatea's world, which literally has magic because it was important to me that 
you know, it's not just about like, you know, in the beginning of the story, Juniper is miserable. She misses home. She's just moved like a thousand miles to start middle school. Like everything is horrible. She just wants to get out of here. She hates this place. She does not want to, you know, grow roots here. She does not want to, you know, learn to love, you know, boring small town Florida. And so I wanted to make sure that it didn't feel like the magical other world was totally this perfect escape where she where like she finally experiences like beauty and magic. I wanted Florida to, like I wanted her to learn that Florida has just as much magic and wonder and, and natural beauty and things like that, like in, in the world around her. And all she has to do is learn how to observe it and pay attention to it. Um, especially because she's an artist, like she's already into observing. She loves bugs. She loves weird stories. She loves like, you know, learning more about um, like dirt and stuff like that. And so I wanted her to really learn to love where she was um, from below the ground up and learn to, you know, open her eyes to all the things that she could discover both, you know, in the world around her and in the people around her. Um, and how this, like, supposedly the most normal, boring, small town America place can be just as full of magic as a literal magic world where islands float in the sky. Um, and so I did a lot of research into Florida. I spent so many hours, like, I, I've, I've been there a couple times, but never, like, specifically to small town South Florida. So I spent so many hours, like, on a Google Street View, like, walking around various towns and like researching like the flora and fauna and, and watching YouTube videos of like people walking through the swamps. Um, and so it kind of made me fall in love with that place as well. And that that really helped spark my imagination once I began thinking of this place as, you know, a place that could be full of imagination and full of just, you know, amazing things as soon as you start um, caring to notice them. Uh, so yeah, so I, I just really tried to learn as much as I could because I found that um, learning more about something always makes me just, you know, want to keep learning and, and want to keep appreciating it and discovering it. I love that because it really does pair well, as you mentioned, with getting Juniper letting the new friends be their own people with her rather mm -hmm. than reflections of her own desires, allowing herself to sort of be emotionally inconvenienced as well as mm -hmm. geographically inconvenienced <laughs> and just sort of allowing herself to discover the pleasures of something not conforming to your expectations. At the same time, Florida is a magical place. We know this because Galatea comes to Florida and it's certainly magical to her that she's gone through the portal to be there, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, she is under the impression that she's going somewhere totally different and is a little bit surprised when she ends up in a bedroom in small town, Southern Florida. Which, how many times has she been to a bedroom in small town, Southern Florida? Not that many, I suspect. <laughs> uh, Not I many. Also, I, know. <laughs> I also thought this this thematically, you know, I have a, I'm not going to climb back up on my soapbox about middle grade fiction. Uh, everybody listen to all the other middle grade centric episodes of the podcast. Sorry about that. Um, but I do think this book really, in its sense of new friends and new geography, even if a kid hasn't moved places a number of times and doesn't experience that emotional or geographical location, middle grade is that time when that sense of dislocation of yourself begins and decide, you know, figuring out, or I don't know about deciding, I keep saying deciding, or maybe it should be concept 
concepting who you are or letting your imagination be freer to express who you are as a person. I always think of middle grade as that place where that's where that's where that's really happening. Mm-hmm. I know you've written for YA before. Were there particular challenges in imagining the, the specific middle grade voices of these characters that was different for you than middle grade? Yeah, so it was really it was really interesting because, you know, writing YA, I was already kind of accustomed to writing in that um, place where, you know, you're you're a teen or a kid and you're like feeling everything in the entire world and everything is like the biggest thing you've ever felt. And it's your first time experiencing, you know, uh, like a, a big crush or love or heartbreak or things like that oftentimes. Um, and so in some ways it was similar because there was still all those like big messy emotions um, that, you know, you're not yet equipped to handle because oftentimes you've never felt something that huge and that all encompassing before. And it feels like the end of the world or the start of the world. Um, but going a little bit younger, it was definitely a matter of, I think kind of unlearning a lot of things. Like there's this, there's this one, um, there's this one study that like a, a teacher did in their classroom where they had a bunch of, a bunch of children aged from like, you know, second grade up to like through high school, write poetry. And so they found that um, a lot of the high schoolers' poetry made use of cliches, you know, like, I feel butterflies in my stomach, or like, you know, it shattered my heart to a million pieces or stuff like that. Whereas because they'd already learned mm-hmm. those cliches and learned like how language is supposed to be structured, and, and you know, what things that people say and what you're supposed to say. Um, whereas all the children, their poetry was so much more wild and uncontained and like making so much more creative use of language and, and, and grammar and syntax because they simply hadn't learned the cliches yet. And so I tried to kind of um, keep that in mind when I was writing, when I was in, in Juniper's voice, um, trying to, you know, really unlearn a lot of cliches or just like structures and the ways that you learn to, you know, be subtle in writing or to hold yourself back or to like, you know, to hint at something, you show, don't tell. I wanted to um, make her voice seem a lot more raw and a lot more, um, I guess, unrestrained by certain confines, both like literally of language and then also um, of ways that she is interacting with people. And so, um, so yeah, so I was, a lot of it was stopping myself from pulling my punches in a way with her emotional reactions to things and just letting her um, process much more in the moment as opposed to a teen who might process less in the moment and then have like, you know, their kind of, you know, big mental breakdown thing later on. Um, so I, I tried to keep her feeling a lot more present and a lot more, um, just loose in terms of the language that she was using to describe her feelings and how she was, um, describing herself and, and the world around her. I tried to have a lot more, um, strangeness in it and and magic in it um especially when she was you know exploring the swamp of florida um yeah i just wanted her to feel more wild and more unrefined than even a teenager would um and so a lot of it was a lot of it was like on the language level like trying to uh use especially creative language or not or like deliberately break grammar and syntax rules because you know she's a kid like you know she's gonna think how she thinks so writing for middle grade as opposed to YA I also wanted to um 
you know, I want I wanted to go for an escapist fantasy. Like this is a story about a queer character. She's 11. She's gay. She's experiencing her first gay crush. Um, but you know, she's obviously she is still 11, so she doesn't really like uh, know how to define it and and all of these things. And she doesn't know how to describe what she's feeling yet. She just knows that she's feeling it, and she has like kind of you know all of these fears and these insecurities um, that she's not very good at controlling. And so I wanted to lean into just, yeah, like letting her, letting her feel on the page and then, um, you know, keeping the escapism of, you know, this book is primarily a romp. It, it, it's not one of like, it's not a book that focuses on homophobia, despite the Florida setting. Um, it's very, very escapist and it's just supposed to feel, you know, safe and comfortable and like you're hanging out with a friend. But I did want to touch on touch on things like that and her and her fear is about you know am i normal like am i weird all these things that you're so 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 preoccupied in middle school when you're beginning to have that sense for the first time that it's possible to be weird and it's possible to not fit in and that's really really bad you know it's not like kindergarten where everyone's just kind of like doing their own thing like middle school is the first time when you're really starting to have that visceral awareness of how other people perceive you and how you're supposed to be perceived in the ways that you are not being perceived the way you want to. Um, and it's just so much. And it's this, this transitional period um, that's even more intense than being a teenager because it's the first time that you're having that. And then also the first time that you're really kind of growing up and learning, you know, that magic isn't real in the way you might've thought it was. And, and there's, it's the first time, you know, obviously a lot of kids experience this earlier than others, but for, I think most kids, it's the first time when things start really getting hard, like because of external sources and, you know, school gets harder and friends get harder and everyone's, you know, going through puberty and having hormones and fighting and everything is just kind of hard for the first time. Um, and there's a lot of disillusionment in that age range. Um, and so, yeah, and so it was it was interesting trying to write a story that touched on those topics, but also kind of injected magic back into that sort of magicless time in a kid's life when everything can often just sort of suck. Um, and trying to balance, uh, you know, the sort of agonies of being 11 years old, 12 years old with this magical adventure that she's getting swept up along. I wish I'd had a book like Juniper Harvey when I was um, grades four through six. Not any fun at all for exactly no. the reasons that you have outlined there. Um, I really enjoy this book. Again, just just pitch perfect and how it presents Juniper and her friends and how they negotiate that. The world is not arbitrary. It is made of choices, choices that we are making in our artistic and geographical and our emotional lives. And sometimes we just start getting a glimpse of the real stakes involved and that can freak out the 11 year old mind. I know it did mine. I know it did mine. Welcome to Prozac. Um, <laughs> Juniper Harvey in the Vanishing Kingdom is for ages eight to 12 or any age whatsoever because it is that delightful to read and to read out loud. Now, I believe I believe this because I saw a cover of cover sketch of it a couple of weeks ago. There will be another Juniper Harvey adventure. Will you tell us what the name of that Juniper Harvey adventure is? Yes, I think I think I can tell. I, I think, think you can tell. I too. think we're wrong. I mean, yeah. 
you know. I, I feel like if you're saying, I can tell them. I can totally tell. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the title is Juniper Harvey and the Dreaming Sea. And, um, yeah. And so it involves, spoiler alert, it involves Juniper and the gang. And um, they're going on another adventure. This time, as you might imagine, there is a bit of an ocean voyage involved um, where there's, turns out, there's more problems going on in the other world and it might take a bit of an ocean voyage to get to the heart of them. Um, and it was super fun to write. I've been reading a lot about boats, <laughs> doing a lot of research about boats. Well, having seen the cover and having read a little bit of, of the manuscript they put uh, for us to read just a taste of, let me just say shenanigans and hijinks will abound. Oh, they're afoot. They are afoot. Shenanigans afoot, hijinks abounding. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today, Nina. It was a pleasure to have you with us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Dental listeners out there in the digital universe, Juniper Harvey and the Vanishing Kingdom should be on your shelf now. Now, if you would like to learn more about Nina or even invite her to visit your school and library, you should visit her at ninavarella.com or reach out to us at LB School on the Twitters or the Instagrams. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next time.